0: Hello and welcome to the podcast Buffy and the Art of Story. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. Today we are talking about Season 4, Episode 14, Goodbye, Iowa. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. If you like supernatural thrillers or female private investigator mysteries, you can check out the first in each of my series free at lisalilly.com. That's L-I-S-A-L-I-L-L-Y dot com slash free. As to Goodbye, Iowa... In particular, today I'll talk about The episode being as much about theme as plot, repetition and exposition that slows the pace as characters tell each other things that we as the audience already know, the role that dramatic irony plays in pacing and tension, and more moments like those we saw in previous episodes that undermine the initiative's power as a foe, as well as a pretty big story question or character question that goes unanswered. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Goodbye, Iowa, first aired on February 15, 2000. It was directed by David Solomon and written by Marty Noxon. We start with an opening conflict of sorts, because we pick up exactly where the I and team left off in Giles' apartment. This is part of why last time I was thinking Goodbye, Iowa might be more of part two of a two-part story. But in the end, I see this episode more as a turning point For season four, rather than mainly a continuation of last week, Spike sits on the steps. Buffy paces the apartment and tells Giles, Anya, Xander, and Spike about how Maggie Walsh sent her into the sewer tunnels with a blaster that malfunctioned. And as Buffy says it, then, it's raining monsters. Giles asks if she's saying that Walsh set her up, and Buffy says, She sent me on a one way recon. So far, not a lot of conflict here. Buffy is relaying past conflict. It feels a little bit flat. But then we do get present day conflict when Spike says, I've got to hand it to you, Goldilocks. You do have bleeding, tragic taste in men. I've got a cousin married to a regurgitating Frovlox demon got better instincts than you. And Spike explains, you think Riley was off knitting booties for your future offspring while Maggie was stringing you up? Everyone else is silent, too silent. Giles finally says that probably Riley was not involved, but they'd be remiss if they didn't consider all the possibilities and Buffy, Still Pacing says no, Professor Walsh made sure Riley wasn't around when Walsh sent Buffy on assignment. They're all also worried that the initiative as a whole will not be thrilled that the gang knows so much about it. Buffy thinks Walsh wanted to kill her because she asked too many questions. This is ground we covered before in the last episode, and it will be said again in this episode. Giles comments that they can only imagine what Walsh would be so desperate to hide, and this line serves as a transition to the next very quick scene. At 2 minutes 34 seconds in, we get a quick shot of the woods, it's foggy, and Adam steps out of what looks like a hidden entrance to the initiative, and we cut to credits. Part of what is happening in this pre-credit sequence or cold open is dramatic irony. That is where the audience knows something that the characters don't. That can be used to good effect to create a lot of tension. In the pilot of the series, that concept operated really well because as the audience, we saw Darla in the very first scene turn into a vampire and attack and kill someone. When she appears later on in the bronze, we know the danger she poses. And Buffy doesn't know that. So it adds to the tension Here, we know Maggie Walsh is dead, that Adam killed her. We also know that Maggie told Riley that Buffy was dead and that Riley saw Buffy talking to Walsh on video. But instead of creating more tension, for me at least, it undercuts the tension here because it is mostly just characters telling each other things that they don't know but we do. Maybe the first time around, I felt a little bit of heightened tension with the idea that, oh, Buffy doesn't know what Riley is aware of. And none of them know that Maggie is dead. But certainly on rewatch, unlike a lot of Buffy episodes, that tension fizzles. When we come back from the credits... Buffy and her friends are grabbing weapons, not to storm the initiative, but to hide from it. And they decide against going to Willow's place because... Riley knows Buffy and Willow hang out, and instead they're going to go to Xander's basement because the commandos haven't seen Xander that often. As with the last episode, this is a small plot choice that, for me, undercuts the threat the initiative poses. If hiding in Xander's basement can thwart this super secret, powerful military organization, how good can these guys be? Giles thinks they can safely stay at his apartment and plan. So, of course, right at that moment, Riley bursts in. We're at four minutes, 30 seconds into the episode. He is distraught. He asks Buffy if she's okay and what's happening. There's some really nice body language here as Buffy moves toward him, but then stops a foot or so away and says, Maggie tried to kill me. Riley looks a little shocked, but not too much since he did see a lot on the video. Anya leans forward and says to Riley, it didn't work, but they're all upset anyway. One of my favorite Anya lines. Riley wants to hear everything in detail. It must be a mistake. And Xander argues there was no mistake. And he demands that Riley tell them what Riley knows about all of this. Riley explains he was on a mission. He doesn't tell them what Maggie said to him. And he goes on, let's just keep our heads, not jump to any. And he's about to say conclusions. But he sees Spike and leaps to his own conclusions. Unlike when Riley saw Spike before, and Spike was dressed in Xander's clothes, now Spike is wearing jeans and a black t-shirt and is much more recognizable to Riley. Somewhere around here or a little before, we should have seen an inciting incident or story spark that sets off the main plot. And usually that's about 10% through, which was when Riley burst into Giles' apartment. So that that does set off our story to some extent, but I feel like this moment when he recognizes Spike, which is a little later at 5 minutes, 10 seconds in, is what really gets our story going because Riley now not only is distraught over Maggie and trying to figure out what she's done, now he will be suspicious of Buffy. Buffy tries to explain about Spike, saying it's a long story, but Spike's not bad anymore. Spike protests that he is, but he can't bite, thanks to the commandos. Riley demands to know what Spike is doing there. Spike tells him he's leaving. He doesn't need the dramatics. But before he walks out, he says, by the by, if you're trying to kill her, and Spike grins and gives two thumbs up. After Spike is gone, Riley again wants answers and can't believe that Buffy is hiding a hostel. Xander tells him to back off, saying your boss just tried to make monster food out of her. Riley takes a breath, tells him about Maggie saying Buffy was dead but insists that is not Professor Walsh. There must be something making her act this way, something, I don't know, controlling her. Giles now raises what he heard about the initiative working for some darker purpose, but Riley insists that's wrong. He gets more and more agitated, says he has to leave to sort this out on his own. At 7 minutes, 26 seconds in, we switch to a little boy playing with a toy robot doll that looks a lot like Adam. Adam approaches him and says, what am I? And the boy responds, you're a monster. Adam looks disturbed when he says, I thought so. So we get some echoes here of Frankenstein's monster venturing out into the world, wanting to be part of it and feeling rejected. Though in this case, the boy does not seem at all disturbed about Adam being a monster. Now Adam asks the boy what he is, the boy, and how he works, and the boy doesn't know. Then he points to the tip of a skewer at Adam's wrist and asks what it's for. Adam smiles, and we cut. At 8 minutes 49 seconds in, in the initiative Dr. Engelman opens the door to the room 3:14. The lights don't work. He sees Adam is gone, and he slips on blood. On the floor, he is face-to-face with Professor Walsh's dead body. The scene cuts to a close-up on a mirror ball. Everyone has slept the night in Xander's basement. Giles on a beanbag chair. Willow, Buffy, and Anya are in the bed watching cartoons, specifically the Coyote and Roadrunner. And Buffy critiques their efforts and says, "'That would never happen.'" And Willow responds, well, no, Buffy. That's why they call them cartoons, not documentaries. Buffy worries about Riley. His whole world is falling apart. And Anya comments, you know, you really should get yourself a boring boyfriend. Like Xander. You can't have Xander. Buffy says that was the idea. Riley was supposed to be Mr. Joe guy. Anya suggests then just dump him. But Buffy says it's too late. She's already at the... I hurt when he hurts. I smile when he smiles stage. Xander rushes downstairs to tell them to turn on the TV. The news reports that a boy was killed with a large skewer and the body mutilated. Buffy remembers the Polgars skewer and thinks that Maggie sent the demon after her, but it got distracted and killed the boy. Giles tells her not to blame herself. We are now a little past one quarter through the episode. This is where I look for the first major plot turn. It should come from outside the protagonist, spin the story in a new direction, and raise the stakes. At 12 minutes 12 seconds in, Buffy says she won't blame herself. She's going to the crime scene to find the Pulgara, and she tells the others to keep researching, but she will make the Pulgara pay, and she goes on, I'll make him die in ways he Can't even imagine. They all stare at her as she gives this speech, Anya particularly focusing on Buffy's outfit. Buffy looks down and says, That probably would have sounded more commanding if I wasn't wearing my yummy sushi pajamas. This does take things in a new direction for Buffy. She's going to hunt the polgara. I'm not sure it raises the stakes, which are already pretty high. Side note on the yummy sushi pajamas, I watched this hanging out at my parents' house. I didn't live there at the time, but I must have come to visit and for whatever reason had the TV on. And my dad came in and watched a little with me. And he didn't know anything about Buffy. He just came in on this scene. At the commercial, I said something about it being pretty funny Thinking about Buffy in her pajamas, but my dad, who's quite a bit older than me and was born in 1918, said, Yes, it's really strange, a woman giving orders. And I gotta say, my dad is not, for his age, he was not one to draw a lot of gender lines. He always encouraged me to do anything I wanted to do. I never remember him saying, well, you know, you're a girl. You can't do that. Be a doctor. Be a lawyer. He was teaching me algebra when I was in, like, first grade. But I guess for him, it it just, that was the strange part. He didn't even get the pajamas thing. So we also get a shift for Riley in the next scene, And it really spins the story for him. And it does raise the stakes for him emotionally because he's at the frat house. Forrest comments on him being gone all night and congratulates him and Buffy on getting past the shy phase. But Riley tells Forrest he was alone and he thinks Walsh tried to have Buffy killed. Forrest at first seems confused and concerned, but when Riley says Buffy thinks it's because she asked too many questions, so again, we hear that theme, Forrest shifts gears and says Buffy tends to put her nose where it doesn't belong. Forrest also suggests Walsh might have found out Buffy was up to something bad. Riley wants to know what Forrest has against Buffy, and he responds, it bugs me that she's using you to infiltrate our operation. And he goes on to argue the professor is not stupid, and if she tried to kill Buffy, maybe Buffy needed killing. At 14 minutes in, we get that shift for Riley I was talking about because Graham enters and tells them that Walsh is dead. Side note on Forrest, to be fair to him, in some ways, Buffy was infiltrating the organization through Riley. Now, that was not Buffy's goal. She wanted to work with them, and she wanted to work with Riley. She was excited about it, but Giles did tell her, keep her eyes open. The Scooby gang as a whole was skeptical of the initiative, and They all did partly see it as a way to see what was going on. So it's not unreasonable for Forrest to suspect that of Buffy. Obviously, I think it's unreasonable for him to think it was okay if Walsh killed Buffy. We cut to the initiative. Riley and Forrest see Walsh face down on the floor, blood on the back of her lab coat. And Forrest thinks it looks like she was staked. Riley talks about the Pulgara. Forrest insists it was Buffy. Riley grabs him by the shirt. They're about to fight, but Engelman breaks them apart, telling them Washington is sending a team to do an internal investigation. But he agrees it probably was the work of the Pulgara and tells them the demon escaped. He also orders them to go back to Quarters. But Riley says he's still in charge until the brass arrive, and he orders the commandos to suit up. He scratches his hand as he talks and tells them they're going to find the Pulgara. At 16 minutes, 32 seconds in, we cut to military vehicles, commandos getting out with weapons, They also go into a gated mausoleum or crypt, which has the word law over the top. Something I only noticed on this watch. I'm not sure what it means, but it's kind of cool. And apparently it is Spike's crypt. We cut to the interior. Forrest and Graham go in. They observe the TV, which is still warm. I think maybe a homeless guy is staying there or a demon squatter. Graham says it's not the Pulgara, though, although I'm not sure... Why he thinks this and Forrest says who cares I see a demon it dies they open a concrete coffin and there's a skeleton inside lying on an old burial shroud Forrest is angry at finding no demons and he breaks the TV screen on the way out. After they're gone, Spike emerges. He was hiding under the shroud, and he takes a deep breath. At 17 minutes 44 seconds in, we cut to Buffy. She's outside on a hill. There are police cars and police tape everywhere. Riley approaches from behind and says, hey. Buffy apologizes for how strong everyone came on back at Giles' apartment. She tells him the spike thing isn't as tweaked as it looks, then admits that maybe it is, but there's an explanation. Riley, though, is frowning and looking away. Buffy says, hello, I'm apologizing here, and I think that's pretty big of me, considering I'm the one who was almost made a demon sandwich. This is part of where you throw me a bone? Riley squints and says, Maggie's dead. Happy now? And Buffy responds, how can you ask me that? Of course I'm not happy. When she asks what happened, he says it's classified, but he half nods, in assent, when Buffy guesses the Pulgara got Maggie and escaped. And Buffy says, I'm going to find it and destroy it. And then you can stop asking me how happy all this death makes me. This is good tension between Riley and Buffy. It's very genuine growing out of where they are at the time, what they each know about the situation. It's not... False conflict thrown in there just so that we can have a clash. At the same time, it suffers a bit from that repetition. Now everyone knows Maggie is dead, but we've known it since the end of the last episode. I like, though, how well Riley's. Words and actions are justified once we know that he is going through withdrawal, because even without that, he has lost his parent figure. He has all these questions about the military that he's put so much faith in, and he understandably has questions about why Buffy didn't tell him things, why she didn't tell him about Spike. Ridling knows someone betrayed him, and he doesn't know who it was, and, and neither is a good option. And there also is no way to reconcile. There's no universe where both Buffy and Maggie just had a misunderstanding. Something is very wrong, and his character is built well enough that You can see how distressing that is to him and how it might lead him to be horrible with Buffy, though if it wasn't also for what we find out about the drug withdrawal, I am not sure I would find it forgivable. I love that Buffy does, however. Yes, she gets mad, but throughout this, even before she knows Riley is sick, she persists in trying to see his point of view which tells us a lot about Buffy as a person and about how much she feels for him. At 19 minutes, 36 seconds in, Willow goes to Tara's room. They talk about how great the spells were that they did the other night. And Willow says, I hope you don't think I just come over for the spells and everything. I really like just talking and hanging out with you and stuff. Tara smiles and says, I know that, but you want to do a spell. And Willow says, yeah, and they both laugh. If you find the breakdown of plot points and story elements on this podcast helpful, and you want feedback on the plot of your story or novel, you might want to take advantage of the plot and story element critique that I offer at writingasasecondcareer.com slash plothelp. This service works well if you want feedback on your plot before you start to write, or if you're stalling in the middle of a draft or project and you suspect part of the issue is the plot, or if you are finished with a first draft but you're not ready to or you aren't able to spend $1,000 or more on a full story edit of your manuscript. The critiques I offer include a look at all your major plot turns, either based on an outline you create or filled out story structure worksheets that follow the format that I use in the podcast, as well as a look at the first 1,200 words of your story or novel. The service right now, as I'm recording this on June 24th, 2021, costs $139. There are only limited slots available, but patrons of Buffy and the Art of Story get 10% off. If you want to check it out, you can find details at writingasasecondcareer.com slash plot help. I love this about Tara, who is the opposite of Riley here. She is not eager to read things in the worst possible way. She looks for the best And with these two scenes juxtaposed, I suspect that was a purposeful contrast that the writers were showing us, this difference in the two relationships and the two characters of Tara and Riley. Willow tells Tara they need to conjure the goddess Thespia to locate demon energy in the area. Tara looks troubled and queries whether they're ready for that conjuring Thespia, but she does agree to do it. At 20 minutes, 30 seconds in, Buffy walks into Willie's place. It is the demon slash human bar. It has sparkly lights now and music. It's busier than when we last saw it. Willie tells us he's serving chicken fingers that the demons go crazy for and that he's been making some changes to his image as a double dealing snitch. He can only tell Buffy about the Pulgara if she punches him just once to make it look like she forced him. However, he starts yelling in pain the second she makes a fist. She points that out, so he stops, braces himself, and she punches him. Harder than I think she really needs to, by the way. Willie tells her the Pulgara demon was around a week or two back, but the army guys took it off the streets. Just as Buffy asks about those army guys and 314, Riley walks in. We are at the midpoint of the episode. This is where, in a strongly structured story, we usually see a major commitment by the protagonist or the protagonist suffers a major reversal. So now we get the major reversal at 22 minutes, 9 seconds. Riley looks sweatier. He gets angry when she asks if he's following her. He thought he'd help track the Pulgara with her. And he goes on, but now I see you're not hunting demons. You're socializing with them again. I thought you were supposed to be killing these things, not buying them drinks. He's very loud, and she points out this is not great undercover work. But Riley says, I want you to tell me, who are you? Willie tries to de-escalate, suggesting Riley sit down, offering chicken fingers. Riley threatens to take Willie back to the lab. Buffy tells him to leave Willie alone. He's human. And Riley responds, so he's human. He just harbors demons, which makes him a good guy like you. This is where, on breaking down this episode, I started seeing how much of it advances the theme of the blurring of the lines between humans and demons. Or simply overall uh, between any sort of black and white or good and evil. And I feel like the show has been evolving in this direction. We started for the most part with vampires and demons bad, humans good, with the exception of Angel. But every year the lines get more fluid. We had Giles, Black Hats, and White Hats talk at the grave of Ford in Lie to Me when Buffy was grasping that nothing was as simple as you grow up. And this season in particular, these lines are getting more and more fluid. We have Spike who keeps insisting he's bad and evil, and he is, but he has this chip that keeps him from taking those actions. So he's not good, but he can't do a lot of evil. And Oz, who was presented as good in previous seasons, despite being a werewolf, because he could control it, in this season, could not control the wolf and left. And it raised more questions about how do we draw these lines? Can we draw these lines? Buffy now notices that Riley is shaking, and he grabs her, spins her around, and demands the truth from her. Buffy says, you have the truth. You were just too screwed up because of what happened to Professor Walsh to see it. She breaks his hold on her and says, now let go of me. Someone who looks like a middle-aged human woman in hat heads for the door. Riley pulls the gun, tells her she can't leave until he says so. Willie interjects that there are new rules here, no killing. Riley responds, right, except the rules don't seem to apply much these days, do they? Buffy inches closer to him, Riley's whole arm is shaking, and he says to the woman, like if I shot you right now, I don't know if I'll have a corpse on my hands or one pissed off vampire. With the gun still pointed at the woman, he looks between her and Buffy as he talks about lies and truth and who to believe. The woman trembles, almost sobbing. Riley turns away, sweeps the glasses off the bar and puts the gun down. The woman runs out. Buffy slowly approaches Riley, who is shaking more, and he asks her what is happening to him. We cut to a commercial. When we return, Riley is sitting on the bed at Sanders. He can't stop scratching his hand. He feels like something's crawling inside him. She takes her bandana out of her hair and wraps it around his hand and tells him he's sick. He tells her he doesn't know anything, who the bad guys are. Maybe he's the bad guy. And, quote, maybe I'm the thing you should kill, close quote. So more blurring of the lines. The bed is curtained off from the rest of the basement. After getting Riley to lie down, Buffy steps out and tells the others she thinks this is not just grief. Xander and Buffy agree there must be records about Riley and 314 in the initiative. Buffy says the two of them will go undercover and break in, and she's hoping Walsh didn't have time to revoke her clearance. This is handy for the plot because Buffy will be able to get in, but again, it undercuts the idea of the initiative as such a powerful military organization. As soon as Forrest suggested that Buffy might be the one who killed Walsh, her clearance should have been revoked sure Forrest was wrong both Engelman and Riley disagreed with him but you would think that they would be on the side of being super careful with security in the initiative after someone killed Walsh Anya is not thrilled with this plan of Buffy's and says hey remember before no Xander Not in a boyfriend way or a lead him to a certain death way. When Buffy argues Xander's the only one with military experience, Anya correctly points out he doesn't have military experience. He was G.I. Joe for one night. Xander reassures Anya that he'll be okay, but she still wishes he could do something else like Xerox handouts. Giles tells Buffy, still no luck in figuring out where the Pulgara demon is, and Buffy says, keep looking. This is a good segue to Willow and Tara, but again, it is something of a lack of forward motion in one part of the story because we keep returning to Giles in the basement saying we're getting nowhere. Willow, though, creates a map of Sunnydale on the floor. She gives Tara part of a potion. They'll blow it onto the square map, and it'll create a mist over where the demons are, making different colors for different breeds. But when they say the spell, eyes closed, Tara hides her part of the potion under the bed. When the spell doesn't work, Willow looks disappointed and confused, and so does Tara, though she obviously knew it wasn't going to have the desired effect. At 29 minutes, 8 seconds in, Xander is in camouflage gear. Buffy has her hair in a bun and is wearing glasses, which of course always fools everyone. They go into the fraternity house. And I'm making fun of Buffy's disguise, but... That and Spike looking so different in his normal clothes versus Xander's does speak to something very real, which is that a major way we recognize people is by their characteristic ways of dressing. Uh, face recognition. I learned this in evidence class in law school and also in some side reading I did about security and protecting yourself. It is not that easy to recognize faces of people that you have only seen once or twice or to remember a face of a stranger and describe it to the police or in a trial. So clothing can make a big difference in what we register about a person. So if this fraternity house is not all commandos, or if we assume that Buffy only interacted with a small subset of commandos, maybe no one would think anything of it. Buffy discovers that her clearance is still good. She passes the retinal scan, and the elevator arrives. And Xander says, why am I not entirely comforted by the arrival of the man-sized microwave? And he is later down below quite impressed by the expanse of the initiative, including that aluminum foil-lined pit. And he says, I totally get it now. Can I have sex with Riley too? Buffy is now wearing a white lab coat and carrying a clipboard. When two military guys are about to cross paths with them, Xander grabs Buffy to kiss her and she asks what he's doing. And Xander says in the movies when a guy and a girl have to hide and Buffy cuts him off and says, please, could you possibly draw more attention to us? This is the initiative, Xander. Military guys and scientists do not make out with each other. As they continue on their way, Xander says, well, maybe that's what's wrong with the world. Ever think about that? This move by Xander used to really bug me because it just seems so goofy. But since I've been doing the podcast and some listeners have pointed out the different movie lines that Xander uses, so now I have more of an eye for it. I realize it fits because Xander's frame of reference for so much is the movies and television. Even his ways of helping the group is a mix of what he experienced on Halloween and kind of what he's drawn from different war movies and shows he has watched. At 31 minutes, 8 seconds in, Willow is now at the basement telling Giles and Anya that her spell didn't just go wrong. It totally failed. Giles says they are not faring any better. The research is going nowhere. Now, they do add a little bit of new information that there are no more sightings of the demon, and the actions so far highly atypical for a pulgara. There's no record of a pulgara mutilating a child the way this one was mutilated, and Anya adds that the pulgara need to eat every two hours. That plus their low IQs make for demons that aren't exactly low profile. And Willow asks then how has it been hiding in Sunnydale for two days with no one seeing it? So we have that repetition of we're not getting anywhere. We get some new info. But this scene is unusual for Buffy. And we've had a few of them here where we are just getting exposition. It's not coming out through conflict, something that Buffy writers usually do so well. And here it's more just, okay. characters got to tell each other things and they got to tell us things. So here it is. And in some ways, in a novel, when you need to do that, and it, it would be maybe more time-consuming to have it come out through conflict or you just can't think of anything, it's a little easier to deal with this because you can, in narration, just give the audience the information. You can take a sentence and fill them in. Giles learned in his research, X, Y, Z, and was disappointed he didn't learn anything more. But with a visual medium... Like a television show or a movie, information has to come out through dialogue. At 31 minutes, 50 seconds in, Willow pulls aside the curtain in front of the bed to check on Riley, and he is standing right there. He wants to know where Buffy is. They don't want to tell him, but finally admit that Buffy went to the initiative to try to find out what is making Riley sick. He denies that he's sick. Even though he looks worse, more feverish, his motions are jerky. He's also angry that Buffy went there. She doesn't belong in the initiative. Willow tries to convince him not to go after her, that he'll get Buffy killed. I'm not sure that I buy that. Buffy's already gone into the initiative. Whether Riley is there or not, it seems to me there's the same risk. Although I suppose Willow's view could be that Riley will expose Buffy and maybe otherwise she'll get in and out without anyone noticing. So now I am looking for that last major plot turn because we're about three quarters through the episode and that's typically where we see it. It grows from the midpoint and takes the story in yet another new direction. And here that happens At 32 minutes, 26 seconds in, because Riley shoves Willow to the floor and leaves. And his leaving to follow Buffy sets the stage for a showdown between her and Riley and the initiative. So that's a new direction, and it does raise the stakes in the sense that Riley has shoved Willow, and she is knocked to the floor, and this tells us how extreme the effect is on Riley of what's happening to him. At the initiative, we get more exposition. Buffy and Xander over here, Dr. Engelman and another guy in a lab coat talking Engelman warns of the dangers of withdrawal getting worse for the commandos the longer they are without their meds. And they talk about how the guys don't know they've been getting meds through food and they have to get them in stat. It's not clear to me why the commandos aren't eating. I guess the idea is they have been staying in the field. We later find out it's been two days hunting the pulgara. The lab coats also talk about how they need to find Riley, who is, quote, too important to the work to lose now, close quote. We now cut to Spike going into Willie's place. Willie knows him, so he's clearly a regular. He's complaining about the army guys running him out of his place when a heavy hand drops on his shoulder. Spike turns and gets punched in the face. On this watch, I see it's clearly a demon hand. The very first time I watched the episode, I thought it was going to be Riley who punched Spike out. And I do think uh, the writers probably wanted you to think that if you didn't look closely enough and see that it was a demon hand and arm. We then cut back to Buffy and Xander still listening to the lab coats. So this is an example of something you can do if you are stuck with a long exposition scene, which is to either bookend it with something that has action and leaves a little cliffhanger like Spike with the demon punching him. So it keeps the viewer or reader engaged while they go back to this exposition scene. I said bookend, but I guess it's more you can interrupt it with that. Or we could have started with that spike scene, then did the whole overhearing scene, then go back to spike. But either way, it's alternating something with more action in conflict with Exposition, And that can also be good, even if you have conflict in your dialogue-heavy scene, to alternate it with a more action-oriented scene to keep the pace going. Xander and Buffy listen a little more and then follow Engelman into a back room. And Buffy grabs Engelman and says, Now I don't generally like to kill humans, but I've learned that it pays to be flexible in life. She wants to know what they did to Riley and what was in 314. Engelman warns her someone will be coming. They must have seen her on the monitors. Riley rounds the corner and says, the monitors are non-functional at this time, sir. Went down about 10 minutes ago. Buffy is concerned because she didn't do that. Riley looks worse. He now has dark spots under his eyes. Engelman admits Walsh wanted Buffy dead, but he tells Riley the initiative has no interest in eliminating the Slayer. That was Maggie's own idea. Buffy says, why? Spell it out for me. I feel an attack of dumb blonde coming on. If you know someone who loves Buffy the Vampire Slayer but doesn't listen to podcasts, or if you would simply like to revisit season one of Buffy in writing rather than re listening to the podcast, you can get Buffy and the Art of Story season one Writing Better Fiction by Watching Buffy in print or in ebook editions. I also have available the first part of season two in book form. Each of the episodes is included and there is all the content from the podcast just edited to be a little more polished and shinier so you can relive the episodes that way. If you are a storyteller, the books also include topics at the beginning of each episode so that you can flip to the ones that you might find most helpful if, for instance, you want to read all the things about subplots or everything about character arcs. And there are questions at the end of each episode to guide you in applying what you learned from it to your own writing. You can find those Buffy in the Art of Story books at lisalilly.com slash buffybooks or search on your favorite ebook or print book retailer. Engelman says it was because of the project and it has escaped. Riley says that's enough. He's making Maggie sound like some kind of psychopath and she was a brilliant woman trying to help people. Buffy tells him Walsh was feeding him drugs. Riley accuses Buffy of doing this to him. It all started because of her, and he grabs Buffy and wants to know what she did to Walsh. Buffy shoves him away and tells him to stop. This isn't about them. So there's obviously some conflict here, an escalation of it. As with the other scenes, though, it is a little bit slower than normally a conflict in Buffy is because we still have that aspect of now Buffy is telling Riley the thing that she just overheard from Engelman. I think that is probably because we want Buffy as the protagonist to be the one to tell Riley this. We want conflict we want him to have a reason not to believe her versus if Engelman told him directly but if it came out through Engelman Riley conflict it would have kept the pacing faster after Buffy shoves Riley away she says everything we need to know is here we just need to find out what was in 314 a commando's body drops on the floor they all look up and see Adam on a catwalk above and he says me and we cut to commercial. When we return, it's 35 minutes, 47 seconds in. Adam does a bit of a soliloquy. He has been thinking about the world and he wanted to see it. That's why he escaped. And he says, I saw the inside of that boy and it was beautiful, but it didn't tell me about the world. It just made me feel. He goes on that he wants to learn about himself, what he is. And he leaps down to the level that Buffy and the others are at, which perhaps is symbolic um, that he comes down to their level. He pulls out a plastic computer disk. The, uh, they were, I think, like 3.5 inches. Big advancement when they came out instead of the old floppy disks. And he feeds it into a slot on his chest and tells them that he is a kinematically redundant biomechanical demonoid. Professor Walsh designed him, and he called her mother. Engelman tells him Maggie would want him to stand down. Adam agrees, but he says he seems to have a design flaw. He talks about all the different things he's made of. Buffy says he is pieced together from other demons, and Adam says yes, and of humans and machine. And he says, quote, which tells me what I am, but not who I am, close quote, which hits on another theme of this episode, which is related to that blurring of the lines. But the episode is really about identity. We had Riley saying to Buffy, who are you? And now Adam is saying, who am I? Riley is struggling with who he is in light of all these betrayals around him. And Spike, as we'll see, is also struggling with that. Adam goes on to tell them Maggie wrote things down. That's how Adam learned he has a job here and that Maggie loved him. Riley is angry and says she wasn't your mother and she didn't love you. Xander says, is that really the issue? And Riley says, she made you because she was a scientist. Adam feeds in a disc labeled Riley. And he says that mother made Riley, too. Riley denies that Maggie is his mother. He has a mother. And Adam says, yes, an Earth mother. But when he met Maggie, Maggie shaped Riley's basic operating system. She taught Riley how to think, to feel. She fed him chemicals to make him stronger. And he goes on that Adam and Riley were her favorite children, her art. They are family. Riley denies that he and Adam are brothers. And Adam says, that's pain, isn't it? Why? And he asks if it's because Riley's feeding schedule was interrupted or because he misses Walsh. I've, I've been critiquing the exposition delivery throughout the episode, but this part, for me, is an exception. We do have Adam giving us a lot of information and doing a lot of philosophical musing, but there is a lot of pushing back against him. Some of this comes out because Riley is angry and won't accept what Adam is saying. That does help this be more tense, have more of a, A faster pace despite all the information and Adam essentially giving us a speech. Now Riley threatens to kill Adam. Adam tells him he can't. He hasn't been programmed to. Riley says, I cannot be programmed. I'm a man. And this goes to a theme of the season, or at least I think it was meant to be a theme of the season, a minor spoiler of what doesn't happen. I am not sure this is ever entirely carried through. I feel like season four raises some very interesting things about behaviorism, conditioned responses, because we have this can you condition a vampire not to attack? Can you condition a human to be a perfect soldier? Can you program something that is part demon, part machine, part human, and have it stick to the program? All these things are there that Touch on this conditioning aspect, but I am not sure they ever get followed through. We'll see as we go on. But I do think it's key that this is all coming up just past the middle of the season. Adam holds another disc and says, Maggie's plan is on it. How it all ends, does Riley want to hear? We're now reaching the climax. That's where our opposing forces have their final clash and resolve the conflict. So the previous conversation between Riley and Adam could be part of it if Riley were the protagonist. And I think that it is a climax of the Riley subplot. It's a start of the climax of Riley's subplot, his struggle to deal with everything that is happening. But for the main plot, Buffy seems to be the protagonist. So I think here is where the climax starts for that main plot. At 38 minutes, 46 seconds in, Riley answers no to Adam and pulls a gun. Adam easily knocks it away. Buffy tries to fight him, getting in some punches to no effect. He karate chops her to the ground and throws Xander aside and skewers Engelman, who dies. Riley attacks. Adam stabs him, too, but lower in his side. Buffy tries again. She and Adam are fighting. Other commandos try to get into the room. Adam pulls back, thanks them all, says it's been very interesting, and climbs a ladder to leave. We're now in the falling action. This is the part of the story where we tie up loose ends from the main plot. Here, what's going to happen when the commandos get into the room and what will happen with Riley and how Buffy feels about that. And we resolve subplots. In this case, what happened to Spike, who uh, was about to be punched out by a demon? And there is a subplot that does not get tied up, which I'll talk about in a moment. At 39 minutes, 39 seconds in, Buffy goes to Riley, who is slumped against the wall in terrible pain. The commandos break through. Xander tells them there was a demon who escaped up above. Buffy tells them it wasn't the Polgara. It looks like it's half man. So a little bit more characters telling each other things we already know there is some conflict here because will the commandos believe Buffy and Xander as Adam is nowhere to be seen and Forrest says right and you just happen to be in the neighborhood but Riley says Buffy's telling the truth he saw it kill Engelman he tells them to go after it some commandos leave to give chase Forrest and Graham stay Forrest tells Buffy to back off. They'll take care of Riley, take him to a military hospital. And when she says no, the other commanders who are left draw their weapons on her. Xander approaches. All he says is Buffy, but he's so compassionate and clearly concerned, and she backs off. This is a nice moment for Xander, and this is where he really helps. Buffy, less from this military experience and more being there to ground her and help her better evaluate what to do. Forrest and Graham take Riley out and we cut to Spike. It's 40 minutes, 49 seconds in. The demons throw Spike beaten and bloody onto the street. The one who first punched him is angry that Spike's been making war on demonkind with the Slayer. The demon says he doesn't hold with killing other demons. but he'll be inclined to break that code himself if he sees Spike around again. These scenes with Spike at the demon bar getting punched out, even the one where the initiative guys are in his crypt, really could be in any episode. They don't need to be in this one. I see them as being here to add that bit of action in an otherwise fairly talk-heavy episode, but Also, they fit the theme. Like Adam, Spike here could ask himself what he is. He's aligned with the Slayer because he is waging war on demons, but he's not. He's not doing it because he thinks they're evil. He's doing it because fighting is fun. He is still evil, but he can't act on it, and he has no desire to be good. He's also no longer welcome at Willie's, which is probably the most telling part, because Willie seems to be open to demons and humans alike, and vampires, but Spike is, in essence, none of those things. We cut to Willow and Buffy walking on campus. It's daylight. Buffy says, there's been no word from Riley. And she goes on, no way I can get to him until I come up with a better plan than storming in and getting us all shot. And Willow responds, yeah, you might want to work the kinks out of that one. Buffy also worries about Adam, who she could barely fight. It's like Maggie designed him to be the ultimate warrior. And Willow says, there's got to be a flaw. And Buffy says, I think the part where he's pure evil and kills randomly was an oversight. Buffy also says she should never have let them take Riley. There's no way he can be okay. Everything he's ever believed in has been taken away. And he has nothing to hold on to. We cut to Riley lying on a hospital bed, bare chested, his midsection bandaged. And he looks at his hand, which still has Buffy's bandana wrapped around it. And we cut to credits. Before I go to foreshadowing, and there's quite a bit there, I want to say one more thing about the initiative as a foe. I have been commenting on these undermining moments about the initiative, both last episode and this one, where they don't seem to pose as much of a threat as they ought to. Two things on that. First, if the emotional aspects of a story work, we'll often look past minor plot flaws and sometimes major ones because that story is so powerful. And we have seen that in Buffy before, and it is... Particularly, I think, part of fantasy and horror and sci-fi genres. It's part of why we will suspend our disbelief to get those character moments and stories. I feel like I notice the initiative weaknesses more because Buffy and Riley are not as engaging to me as Buffy and Angel or Buffy and Faith. So things that don't quite work, I notice. But maybe... These weaknesses are on purpose to show what happens with a large organization and to show that Maggie Walsh having this project that goes so wrong is not an aberration. The initiative is this institution that sees itself as so powerful and so good at everything, and yet there are many ways in which they slip up, including the major one of they have this professor who is creating a monster. And perhaps that is just as there is a fatal flaw in Adam, there is in the initiative as well. So that is it, except for foreshadowing and spoilers, which I hope you will stick around for. If not, thank you so much for listening. I hope you will come back in two weeks for this year's girl, where faith awakens from her coma. And we are back for spoilers and foreshadowing. Spike's line, I've got to hand it to you, Goldilocks, you do have bleeding tragic taste in men. This foreshadows so much. In season six, Spike and Buffy, he will call her Goldilocks. Again, he uses it more as, I guess, a term of endearment. Buffy is not happy about it. And in, I forgot the name of the episode, but the one where she becomes invisible, she will cut her hair because of it. Also, this foreshadows that Spike and Riley will keep clashing, and Spike is the one who shows her Riley getting bitten by the vampire on purpose, basically shows her Riley's betraying her. It's so interesting that so early on, he's the one who says what the others are thinking that maybe Riley was in on this plot. Also, Willie's place is key. Riley goes into Willie's place, and he's struggling with who is a demon Or vampire who is human he can't differentiate he doesn't know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in season five this storyline where riley ends up paying vampires to bite him which leads to the breakup with buffy it starts in willie's place when a vampire who looks human sits down with him is coming on to him And he immediately recognizes that she is a vampire. So he gets better at telling the difference. And he also gets darker because he will dance with her, get close to her, and stake her. So lots of foreshadowing there. Very fun foreshadowing. Anya watching the cartoons with a coyote and roadrunner made me think of season five when Anya suggests they can stop Glory by dropping a piano on her, clearly drawn from the cartoons. In Spike's Crypt, the interplay between Forrest and Graham, Forrest says, who cares? I see a demon, it dies. And this foreshadows... Forest's attitude throughout, but also Riley's in A New Moon when Oz returns and Riley cannot understand how Buffy can differentiate between types of demons and monsters. She is starting to try to tell him about Angel and he has this reaction, a demon's a demon, and what does it matter what kind of demon it is? The willow terrace scenes, so much here. This part isn't really spoilers when Tara looks apprehensive as Willow describes the spell and she covers it by asking about, oh, are we really ready to conjure the goddess Thespia? And I love that because that little moment is a signal we don't recognize that there is something else wrong, something else troubling Tara. And then, of course, we find out when she hides the potion that there is something greater there and realize, oh, maybe it wasn't about the goddess Thespia. She did not want to do this spell. We don't find out until season five why Tara was afraid of that spell, because Tara believes that she's part demon, a lie that her family told her. I kind of love that that question is not answered, not just in this episode, but in the whole season. And I think it might be the first time we leave open something that big in the middle of the season and don't tie it up. So we are still wondering. It also fits the theme here of blurring the lines, human, demon, good, evil, because even if it turns out Tara is part demon, does that really matter? We've seen that Tara is a good person. The fact that we don't get an answer one way or the other maybe is the show's answer to what difference does it make. Maybe it's none. Buffy saying Riley was supposed to be Mr. Joe Guy foreshadows a lot of issues between them In two seemingly opposing ways, in some ways, Riley is not enough Mr. Joe guy for Buffy. She struggled with that in the beginning when she found out he was a commando. And again, now she seems wistful. She wanted to have what she thinks of as a normal relationship. At the same time, in season five, and I I think we get more hints of it in this season as well, Riley fears that he is not enough for Buffy. He's too normal. Later, he will lose that super strength, and he will feel that there's no reason that Buffy could want him. So lots of foreshadowing also foreshadows Riley's uh, personal struggle, totally aside from Buffy, with who he is outside the initiative Outside the military. And he will conclude in season five that he is not happy with who he is outside the military. And he goes back to it. At least that's how I read that. We will talk more in season five when that happens. And finally, the most striking line here, which I never noticed before, is that moment in Willie's place when Riley says to Buffy, after um, being upset that she's now socializing as he sees it with demons again, he says, I want you to tell me who are you? And who are you is the name of the second part of the Faith Buffy story we get this season so next episode is this year's girl where faith comes back and then who are you where buffy and faith are in each other's body it's so cool to me that we foreshadow not just the episode title but all of what that episode means and riley asks this question now but he doesn't ask it Later, he will fail to ask this question of Buffy or about Buffy in Who Are You and will have sex with Faith when she's in Buffy's body. And he won't recognize it, despite that she is acting very different. And maybe this episode shows a bit about Why. As Buffy goes on to say in Superstar, you can't really expect someone to say, Hey, who are you in that body? Come out of that body, or something like that. But also, you know, we see Riley, he doesn't yet know that much about Buffy, about what being a Slayer is. The world is much more shades of gray than he ever had to deal with. The military has provided this this organization and structure with very clear lines. And suddenly he is struggling with all of that. And it is really hard for him to understand Buffy's world and Buffy. So maybe that is part of why when Buffy is not quite acting like herself, well, he felt that way during this entire episode. and even previous episodes, A New Man, The Eye, and Team, he was struggling to come to terms with all these things he didn't know about Buffy. At the same time, this question, tell me, who are you? Maybe it tells us why Buffy is so upset that he doesn't recognize anything. Because when she was doing what she needs to do, doing her job as a slayer, being perfectly reasonable in her world, he suspects her. He's suspicious. He says, who are you? And then when it really counts, he does not. And of course, it underscores the episode theme of all these characters struggling with who they are. Though ironically, in this episode, I think Buffy is doing the least amount of that type of struggling. So that is it for foreshadowing and spoilers and for this episode. Thank you again for listening And I hope you will come back in two weeks for one of my all-time favorite Buffy episodes, This Year's Girl, where Faith awakens from her coma and comes after Buffy. If you're enjoying Buffy and the Art of Story, please write a review, share it on social media, or tell a friend. You can also support the podcast on Patreon and get access to bonus content, including Q&As about Buffy and about writing, and a story analysis of the first episode of Angel the Series. Follow the link in the show notes or go to Lisa Lilly, that's L I L L Y, dot com slash Patreon. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman LLC, copyright 2021. All rights reserved.